Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Sheerlax In Conversation podcast with me, Charlotte Collins. This week, I'm joined by managing lifestyle editor Heather Steele and chef cookbook author, named no in the foodie industry, Sky Gingell. Sky is originally from Australia and she's worked in food and restaurants for over 40 years and is one of Britain's most respected and acclaimed chefs. She rose to fame as head of Peterson Nurseries before opening her own restaurant, Spring, in Somerset House, which I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with. She's also culinary director of Heckfield Place in Hampshire, has written for Vogue and The Independent, and is the author of three cookery books. Does that all sound right? Yeah, yeah that's a lot. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> impressive role. It's call. a very impressive role. <laughs> Lovely oh, to have you, Sky. Lovely to be here. Can you start just by telling us, we're going to talk about all the foodie things that we, Heather and I selfishly love picking people's brains on, but I've got to ask you about your journey, first of all, from, I mean, 40-year career is I know, it's, amazing. It's, I know, it's kind of frightening when I think of it. <laughs> How did you start? How did you get into food? Um, I kind of got into food accidentally, really. I was doing a degree at university, not particularly sure that I wanted to do that degree, kind of trying to please my parents probably more than anything. And I got a job washing up in a restaurant. And I just loved it from the minute. I loved the washing up part of it even. I mean, I, I have to say I don't now. <laughs> but I was very lucky. There was a wonderful woman who worked there. And I was only 17, so I was pretty young. And she really kind of took me under her wing and mentored me. And in the afternoon when we were kind of, it was quiet, we were closing down. She said, I'm just making a mayonnaise for tomorrow. Do you want to come over here and make one with me? And every time I did something, she was incredibly affirming and encouraging. And I just completely loved it. And I ended up leaving university and working in food full time. Didn't you go to Paris when you were about I 17 did, went and to, work in restaurants? Then? I went to Paris. So I got this job and it was this wonderful woman called Leila Sorfi and she'd been to Paris. And I was basically completely obsessed with her because I, I just wanted to do anything that she did. So <laughs> I remember going home to my parents and saying, I really don't want to be at university anymore. And they were furious. My mother particularly was furious with me. <laughs> and I begged if I could go to Paris. And so I went and I lived in Paris and I went to cookery school for a year, the same school that she went to, a school called La Varenne. And then I spent a year and a half working in restaurants in Paris. That is so cool. Especially at that age as well. Like it must have been so exciting. It was so fun because I lived in a flat with like six other people and we all shared bedrooms and sofas (laughs) and we just drank red wine and ate baguettes basically. And it was in the 80s. So Paris was like so fun and we'd go out all night and yeah, it was a really fun time. Were you learning traditional French cooking? Yeah, so I went to a school, it's very traditional, it was very classic which I, I'm internally grateful for, actually, because I think when you really, really understand the kind of like the basics of cooking, I think it gives you a lot of freedom. But I think you definitely need to know all the techniques. Mm. So I feel very grateful that I had a very classic training. Mm-hmm. So that was Paris. Then what came next? So from Paris, I moved to London. Um, and I was probably about 23 when I came to London. And I knew I didn't want to be at home. I, did, I knew I didn't want to live in Australia at that at that time. I didn't sort of imagine that I'd still be here. I mean, I didn't really think, but, you know, 
always think people always ask me why did you stay and I always think well kind of life got in the way mm. so stuff happens doesn't it you meet someone you have a relationship you know one year leads to another you have kids you know yeah and that's kind of how it happened really for me and I love London actually I still am I'm very conflicted <laughs> I go home a couple of times a year and I really love Australia and I couldn't imagine not having that in my life but still incredibly excited by London as a city I'm excited to talk about the London food scene in a little bit. Um, But what was your first job in London? How did you get into food here? My very first job in London was at a hotel, the Dorchester Hotel on Park Lane. Yeah, and it was with a chef called Anton Mossman. It was a very different food scene in the 80s than it is now. I mean, completely different. And there was very little choice of where you could work. I mean, there was kind of Pizza Express and there were a lot of hotel I mean, Michelin stars and things used tended to be in the hotels mm. and stuff. I worked there and I got a terrible shock because there was so many people in the kitchen. I think there was over 170 wow. people oh, in that wow. kitchen. And if you ever get a chance, it's kind of an amazing kitchen because it's so big that it's actually got an escalator in it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's Which... in the in the basement. And I went and cooked a dinner there a couple of years ago and it was exactly the same as I oh, remember. Wow. wow. I'd gone from kind of cooking in Sydney in a yeah. tiny little kind of charcuterie <laughs> with this really wonderful warm Lebanese woman to a sort of big machine also in Paris the restaurants I worked in Paris were kind of small and I actually it it gave me a real sort of crisis of confidence Mm. because I thought this is I don't think I signed up for this Mm. you know what brought you to London in the first place because as you I mean you kind of referenced but London wasn't like you know particularly um well regarded in a food way no I mean actually my father lived here okay he was living and working in London and I had quite a lot of friends in London and I think I probably came to hang out Mm. like for a little (laughs) while and then maybe think I was going home and obviously I had to work and so I I got this job and um and I ended up staying you know a bit like I said before I ended up meeting someone and yeah can you paint a picture of what life in that kitchen was like I mean we all have our kind of preconceptions of of particularly, I mean, male environments, presumably, as well? I mean, yes. I mean, I think kitchens have changed tremendously. Uh, But it definitely was... I mean, when I worked in Paris, I did work in a kitchen that had 30 chefs in the kitchen, which felt so big then. But actually, Springs got 24, so it it wasn't as big as Mm -hmm. I... But I was the only woman in that kitchen, and I felt incredibly intimidated by that. So you're one in a group of 30. Yeah, and speaking another language. I mean, like... Um, and also, um, you know, then particularly, you know, you went in as an apprenticeship often mm. at 14 or 15. So very, very early. And it wasn't a glamorous job mm. by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, the Dorchester Hotel was very sort of men in big white toque hats. And, you know, it seems like you, you end up being in something. I was in Garde Manger, which is like literally I peel vegetables for a year. So that's all you do. You mm. become this cog in a wheel. Mm. I mean, I think I think people, when they think about restaurant cooking, they think of this incredible freedom and, oh, I'm just going to make an awesome book, for example, yes. and I'll do it from start to finish. But probably someone's peeling the onions, mm. someone's putting on the stock. It's like you kind of fit together as this jigsaw puzzle. But I remember moving and I remember getting up and it was dark to go to work and uh, shifts are long in kitchens. They're still long. You do a lot of hours in Mm -hmm. a week. But, you know, and it was all stainless steel and I never saw the light of day and I'd come out in the evening and it was dark. It felt very brutal, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely felt around about that time that I really wanted to come out of kitchens and it wasn't Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. after all, you know. And it wasn't actually until I found Petersham Nurseries 
that I felt, okay, this is the way I want to cook. I mean, there was a lot of time in between yeah. the Dorchester and Petersham. And I did a lot of private work and that was really fun. And I did a lot of teaching and I wrote. I worked at sort of different restaurants. I worked with Fergus and Margot at original French house dining rooms before they were St. John and Peter Gordon, who I don't know if you remember the Sugar Club and stuff like that. And that was lovely because Antipodeans, they felt more like home and mm. how I'd cooked. But it wasn't really until Petersham that I kind of worked out a way of defining a kitchen that I would like to work in yeah. that made sense for me. So what does that look like? What does that mean? I think they should be creative places. I love working with women. Petersham had a lot of women. Spring at the moment has a staggering amount of women mm. in the kitchen. And um, I don't know why, <laughs> but we've got way more than half out of that 24. There's probably six men at the oh, moment really? or five men. That's cool. You don't actively recruit for women then? I don't at all. Like, I, I think it's really lovely to have a balance. Mm. I mean, I definitely want a kitchen to be an open, nurturing space for women and you know, for them to be able to have kids mm -hmm. and come back if they want to and like them to feel safe and, you know, but things have changed beyond all recognition anyway. Like I, I think the way that people behaved in kitchens maybe in the, well, forever and then also certainly when I was cooking in the 80s and 90s, I mean, you, you, you just simply could not behave like that mm. anymore. You couldn't talk to people the way you no. talk to people. You couldn't... Um, so I feel like I don't have to do that much work to make a nice kitchen mm. anymore because just I think things have changed. Yeah. yeah. Would you say that that shift has come, is that a post-me too thing? Like, is that a really recent thing or has that been a kind of gradual shift over the last I think it's years? really changed. Like, I think, um, I think the whole restaurant scene has changed. And I think there used to be a very kind of, if you wanted to do well as a chef, there was probably a fairly standard trajectory that you had to take and you'd probably knock off a whole lot of Michelin restaurants mm. and put those on your CV and they're pretty brutal places in general, you know, quite ego driven, very often quite complex, complicated places to work. I think Jamie Oliver had a huge mm -hmm. amount to do with changing and making people want to come into food and felt like it was young and fun yeah. mm -hmm. and it was a different way to cook. I mean, I'm not saying he's wholly responsible, mm -hmm. but I think the beginning of that. And then I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are, have decided, I, I love this. I Cooking is like I genuinely love it and I want to do it in a different way and I want to do it in my way. So I think there's so many. There's been in definitely the last sort of, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's a little more, but I mean the whole restaurant scene has exploded in London. I mean, if we could like flash back to even 2004, 2005, maybe even 2010, it, the landscape looked completely mm -hmm. different. And what do you think has been the catalyst for that like how have we become such a foodie hub where we were almost we were kind of scorned right in there in decades gone by I mean yeah I mean definitely scorned like people were so rude about <laughs> mm. English food and actually we I grew up in a very kind of Australia's very very food centric yeah I mean the incredible. food scene is absolutely amazing yeah. and has been since I was a teenager yeah. so but I think actually that changed too I think when they grew up it was like steak and eggs and chips <laughs> but I don't know I think it becomes infectious doesn't it and I think people are inspired I suppose the huge influences were like the River Cafe mm -hmm. and then Sam and Sam at Clark at Morrow and then probably Margot Henderson at Rochelle Canteen and like I think things started to change and people started to enjoy restaurants and I think it just almost was like a I don't know it's like a flame that like took off mm. and like I think the expansion of the East End probably being able to find little kind of hole in the walls yeah. where you didn't have to have a huge restaurant with in Mayfair pricing 
I think throughout the world there's been a kind of huge interest in sort of fermentation and bread making and I think that's those kind of forgotten skills that have become very very fashionable again has probably sparked a lot of interest with young people and also I see a lot of very young chefs really wanting to connect with growing Mm. which is a huge kind of change I also think you can just open a restaurant and do what you like Mm. you know in a little hole in the wall if you want to Well, I think that would have been impossible 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah, there seems more of a pop-up culture now, I suppose. I think the small plates, the pop-ups, like all of those sort of things have changed. And it's just like, I would genuinely say that London's got to be the top two, three, four, like most exciting cities Mm. in the world for food now. I mean, we've just got a variety that is, I guess a multicultural society leads to a multicultural food scene by default, doesn't it? And so we're able to reflect that. And also just people really loving and being curious about that multicultural kind of, um, which I don't think, because I I would have said that would have been one of the big catalysts for Australia having Mm. a really powerful food Mm. scene, was that we had the multiculturalism and a lot of people who immigrated, especially after the war, the Greeks, the Italians, mm. Lebanese. We had a lot of kind of Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean, because we live in Australia, where, where yeah. Australasia. But they all brought their kind of food cultures to Australia. And mm. I think a lot of the things they could do when you've left home and where you work is sort of open a little restaurant and mm. start cooking. And that made for this really beautiful kind of magpie kind of, it kind of make, became this melting pot. That's what's so exciting a mm. lot about Australian food. They don't care if they put fish sauce with pasta, mm. you know, because nobody told them in Paris or London, you know, wherever that you couldn't. Yeah. And that's sort of come over here. And I think people are much more, you know, travel a lot more and see more things. And I think, yeah, it's a whole mixture of things probably. What would you say now is British food, in inverted commas? We've got so many, you know, we've got every type of food here available in London. So how would you characterise British cooking today? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it's very hard to categorise, mm. isn't it? And I think people always, when they describe us, like one of my worst questions, well, there are two, what's your <laughs> signature dish? Mm. <laughs> and what kind of, what's the style of food do you cook? Because mm. it's really hard to pigeonhole. Mm-hmm. And so, but very often people describe us as modern British, like that's what I would mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. in a kind of definition of what spring is, yeah. for example. I don't think I could make that definition. Mm. No, I suppose I, I mean, ask because I'm just, no, I'm just wondering about it as, yeah. as we speak and thinking, is there a, is there an I mean, answer? I suppose the epitome of it would have been certainly, Fer- you know, Fergus Henderson at yeah. one point where you're taking that kind of very sort of. I mean, what I love to see is a a huge appreciation of the produce in England and people using the the kind of the quinces and the nuts and the celebrating seasonality and meddlers and rose hips Mm -hmm. and like all of those things. And but whether I could define what British cuisine was, Mm. I think it's many, many things. Yeah, plus some fish and chips along the way. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. (laughs) What? Let's talk about. London, the restaurant scene. We're going to talk mm-hmm. plenty about your fabulous restaurants in a little bit. But where do you where do you eat? Where um, do you love in London? I mean, I love so many. I mean, I suppose one of the chefs, you know, I really do admire a lot is James Lowe from Lyles. I find him really thoughtful and intelligent. It's very hard because, you know, I suppose it's like anything in food. There's fashion. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of mimicry that mm-hmm. always happens. I guess you see that in everything. But you very definitely see that in food. And I always feel like he had an original... For me, it felt very original when he opened Lyles. I mean, so I love, you know, I guess like all the restaurants that everybody loves. I mean, what do I love? Ikoi. I think that's beautiful and really interesting. That kind of what Jeremy's doing there. Yeah. And that cuisine is incredibly interesting. 
I love West African, isn't it? Yeah, it's West African. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but North, I suppose, as well, but just very influenced by it. Gosh, I mean, you know, of course, if I want to go and, you know, have that kind of lovely sort of warmth is like always Jeremy Lee at Quo Vardis. I mean, I think he's such a kind of fixture and a character in the London restaurant scene. I love the River Cafe. I was hugely influenced by it. Rose and Ruthie were incredibly supportive to me when I was starting Peter Sherm and I suppose my natural leaning is more towards their kind of food in mm-hmm. my own cooking, although it's probably different, but like the use of olive oils and like, you know, all the kind of like brassicas and beans and pulses and pasta we make and stuff. I love going to any sort of new restaurants. I suppose 40 Maltby Street is one of my favorite, like for a kind of cozy, I guess the thing about getting really long in the tooth, there's so many people who've worked for you, like Max Rocha worked, we were the first restaurant, he was with us Amazing. when he first started cooking and it's lovely to see him opening Cafe Cecilia. Yes, I went last week. It was amazing. Was it? Did you Love, enjoy it? Loved it. You, really loved you? it. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's excellent. really interesting. Mm. There's a few ex-spring chefs there cooking there actually, which is really nice. And mm. so, um, so yeah, I try and support. I mean, I was just in actually um, <laughs> to Mallorca for, in the summer and it was, I went to a beautiful restaurant called Petiki Beach and that's Grace Barrows who used to cook with us and stuff. So it's really nice to see like so many people that I've actually had the privilege to work with are kind of doing their own things and so in a way all of that keeps me pretty busy mm. and then I would probably eat out probably less than you think really in a yeah, way. Do, yeah. You, do you cook a lot I mean it sounds like a stupid question but no, you know well. do you cook at home do you not much no no and I know that I think that people probably have a vision of you being this person it's like yeah I've always got a pot on yeah. and I'm, <laughs> but you know actually I've I have cooked for 40 years and it is probably about 12 hours if each and every day of my life. You know, you're either talking about food or planning food or trying things or in the kitchen cooking. And so sometimes I tend to be, I'll, I'll probably make something, especially now that winter's coming, on a Sunday afternoon when it's quiet. I'm probably go to the farmer's market. I might make a big sludgy pot of something that I can kind of lace with olive oil and put it on top of the stove. Mm and bring some bread home. I don't entertain that much because I'm often really tired. And I guess I have the privilege of using the restaurant as that in a way. If mm. I want to have people for dinner very often, I just ask them there. And Amazing. Then I don't have to do the washing up. <laughs> That's yeah, such exactly. a good, yeah. You can pl- plot the menu and everything yeah. yourself. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> what do you, if you did have time and impetus to cook, what else, what do you like to cook? I've never cooked anything in the restaurant that I don't genuinely want to eat myself. I'm probably sure most chefs are like that, but it would feel very disingenuous if I tried to. So I think it has to be a reflection of your real taste and palate. I cook at home and my style of cooking is pretty well the same as I'd eat in a restaurant. Obviously, I'll strip it back and like it'll be a little bit less complex. I haven't actually had any meat in the house for over 10 years. And that's not because I don't eat meat, but I don't feel the need to eat it very often. Mm -hmm. I tend to eat a lot of pulses and grains and a lot of vegetables, Uh, lots of olive oil. I adore butter. I adore any dairy. I'm like a cheese fiend. (laughs) You're speaking the right crew. crew. Probably my death row meal would be some sort of big slab of sourdough with some cheese on it. And if I have people over, I'll do something really simple. I definitely think if you're having people for dinner, it's really good to do something that you don't have to do last minute and myself included. 
because I get distracted as much as you would and I find it really stressful people trying to talk to you and you're just like oh god is Mm. the fish ready to turn yeah (laughs) kind of thing so I tend to do and I love food that you can drag your bread through I love really honest food that's another big question that people ask me is like how do you cook a restaurant meal at home and I always say why would you want to right yeah you know, like a restaurant is one experience, but actually being invited to someone's house is a completely mm. different experience. And I think it should be celebrated mm. for that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You don't want an amuse bouche and a, you know, <laughs> something like a consummator stuff. Yes. Yeah, you, you want to be able to, you know, be with your friends, have fun, yeah. put your elbows on the table, eat food that's kind of simple and delicious mm. and yeah. hearty that everybody can enjoy and be involved in. So, yeah, I I tend to even if I'd have if I'd have say Sunday lunch and I have some friends, I'll probably make a huge pot of something like either a chicken stew, mm-hmm. like something on top of the stove, a big green salad, bread, cheese, some sort of fruit, mm. you know, and and that's really it. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm lost in the days of the ch- I know, I'm just imagining that meal and how lovely it would be. What's the comfort, you know, let's say you get home, it's 11 o'clock and you're hungry and you need... At night. Yeah. Yeah. What are you, what's the What's the quick go-to comfort meal for you? It would be cheese. Mm. Yeah. It would be a slab of bread and cheese. What's yeah. your favourite cheese? So I adore goat's cheese. Yes. Like, love. I mean, I love Wigmore. We were just talking about it yesterday at work, actually. Um just how fantastic British farmhouse cheeses mm-hmm. are now. And that is largely due to Randolph at Neil's Yard Dairy. Mm-hmm. I mean, the work he's done has been absolutely phenomenal. And I just think there are so many beautiful blues. There mm-hmm. are so many hards, semi-hards, triple cream, mm. you know, beautiful goats from Ireland, from Wales, from England, all over England. It would have been a time we would have had to have gone for a really great blue cheese. I mean, especially when Stilton had this kind of thing in the 70s when it had to be pasteurized. But you would have gone to Italy and France for cheeses. Now there's just so many really beautiful cheeses, you know. We were trying, we're doing a menu for something and we were trying to decide which blue that we were going to put on the cheese plate, you know, and there's just from Harborn to, you know, Barkswell to Crozier Blue to, you know, Devon Blue. There's just so Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Really amazing. So, nice to have a choice. Yeah, we're really lucky. Choice. I mean... That's the other thing that's changed so dramatically is quality of produce Mm. available in England. And what has changed that? I think a genuine interest. I think think that's the thing. I think an appreciation of seasonality, like to some extent sustainability, I think that's encouraged people to start 
growing more and uh, I think there are better connections and delivery you know there's some really beautiful companies like Shrub or Natura as well and the mm. work they do to get like produce from small farms mm. up to London that used to be the real challenge is just like the transport also you know I suppose an interest in brilliant olive oils and wines mm. and you know especially from Europe you mentioned yeah. olive oil a few times have you got Have any I? particular favorite bottles that say listeners could go and purchase any well ones? yeah I mean I think the thing is about olive oil it depends what style you really love mm-hmm. I mean and you've probably heard before what kind of grows together goes together and I think if you break down the regions I mean I, I suppose my particular favorites tend to be Italian oils you know for example a Tuscan oil is a very very peppery rich oil that goes incredibly well with the beans that grow in that region you know Tuscany is very famous for like Borlotti, cannelloni and that peppery rich oil goes incredibly well with it and tomatoes in the summer whereas in Liguria they, they it's sort of a, a gentle oil or a Sicilian oil and they go incredibly well with fish but I wouldn't necessarily want to put a Tuscan oil with a white fish there's a science to yes it. so <laughs> I yeah it where is. how mine's from yeah <laughs> I mean it depends if you what if you love peppery you know yeah. some of those oils that literally make Mm. you cough Mm. you know to the kind of sweet it's very personal olive oil but I adore it and I think it's the elixir of life Mm. and um I could virtually drink it yeah yeah Yeah. so everyone should have at least three or four bottles in their cupboards for various I think so and I think the thing is I mean one of the important things is it's like sometimes they are very expensive and like good food can Mm -hmm. be expensive but I think I think it's a way of looking after it. And especially with an olive oil, for example, you don't want to keep it by the stove because it hates heat. It really doesn't like light or air. It's not like a wine. It starts really strong and becomes weaker throughout the year. So that's why new seasons oils are so prized. I don't know. know, There's a kind of real like run to get the first of the new seasons oils, which are about to come into season now from sort of December through to January, depending on where you're buying in the region but it's the first press of extra virgin olive oil and they're the really fruity green like pure oils and then they press the oil olives again it becomes second press or just virgin or just olive oil really good oil you should always look for a dark bottle Uh, if they're in a light bottle they're going to not be kept so well where do you shop I, i shop at farmers markets a lot i buy so i work with fern vero one farm and i tend to buy a veg box from her also at Heckfield we have a farm where we produce milk eggs and we have a five acre biodynamic market garden so we grow a lot I tend to go we do a produce sale every second week so I tend to go there I mean I guess I really shop at the restaurant yeah so if I I want an olive oil or a vinegar (laughs) or um something like that I do that I also try to shop Buy only what I need. Olive oil aside, what do you always have in your in your store cupboard? So in my store cupboard, I would always have garlic, chili, mm-hmm. dried chili, always a bowl of lemons in the kitchen, um, a really good quality salt, anchovies, tins of anchovies, mm-hmm. definitely Orta's anchovies. Mm-hmm. I tend to have things like chickpeas, brown rice, which mm-hmm. I actually really love, things like farro or spelt maybe dried beans like so I'd have a store cupboard that's full of good vinegars and just stuff that I can make something with really quickly I mean I cooked last night and I I cooked spinach and courgettes and it sounds awful but it was actually the most delicious dinner how did you do them my daughter was over and we just literally so she loves spinach and we just like sauteed some spinach that I had in the freezer 
I used to hate freezers and I'm obsessed with them now. <laughs> and I think the thing is that you capture the goodness in, there's much more nutritional content in mm. something like a frozen spinach because you've captured it all. I just had spinach with ol- lots of olive oil in. I put a tiny bit of butter. She asked me, did I put any butter in it? I said, no. <laughs> Don't um, listen to she doesn't like butter. <laughs> and then I just actually pan fried the um, courgettes, the last kind of the really end of the season of courgettes um, with some olive oil and some dried mm. chili, a bit of lemon juice. I mean, it felt like a feast last mm, night. Oh, I delicious. mean, not probably not to anybody else, but to us, it was like really nice. And I was tired and actually I probably cooked everything in about 10 minutes, mm. which was really nice. Do you have a sweet tooth at all? I do. I didn't used to, but I do. Not all the time. I'm not a huge fan of chocolate, actually. I can have one mouthful of chocolate. We make tru- these little kind of caramel truffles at work, which oh. is kind of like smoky and quite bitter, but... I can eat one of those very occasionally. I love fruit-based desserts, so, and I'm obsessed with ice cream. Interesting. Yeah. What kind of ice cream would you make? So we always make what we call it the trio at work. So we always have three ice creams on the menu, and it's really fun to create um, what goes with what, you know. What's the quirkiest flavor you've ever made? I don't know if they're quirky. I mean, we tr- we tend to, like, pair kind of things, like, maybe strawberry and rose geranium i'm not into kind of crazy food mm-hmm. so do you know what i mean so i'm not going to make a kind of i don't know what people spinach do spinach courgette ice cream, yeah. ice cream <laughs> or a sort of i don't know snail or yeah, something yeah. weird ice yeah. cream i like kind of i like beautiful and elegant things <laughs> in general it's really fun like the trio we've got an apple ice cream on for we're doing a new menu tomorrow and we've got a kind of I think cob nut and burnt honey and then we've got a muscat grape sorbet and we've got what was oh prune and armagnac with creme fraiche oh, which gorgeous. Is really nice. yeah, yeah they sound delicious it's fun to kind of do them and think oh would that work with that and uh it's like a little story the three but I've always been obsessed with ice cream you have a ginger cake at Headfield yeah. which uh both Lou um, Lou and our team and myself are obsessed with it yeah. is incredible that cake yes it's on the menu at spring tomorrow actually <laughs> so we, yeah. go for lunch. You, i'm going to be knocking down, <laughs> I'll give you knocking the down the door oh <gasps> would you yeah yeah i will absolutely oh my god that is such to. a win it is yeah, i mean it I is literally the best. everybody loves that cake it actually. is incredible it is mm. heather it's so moist oh. and mm. it's just amazing it's an american style cake oh, nice. so a, a lot of american cakes have oil in them and that's what gives them that gloss and, oh, and, okay. and yeah, extra days of health in there. Yeah. Oh. Let's talk about spring. First yes. of all, so how long have you had spring in Somerset House? Eight years. Okay. Yeah. And where did it come from? What was, what was the idea? So I left Petersham and I'd had 11 really beautiful years, mm. like amazing, really creative. I, I adored it. You know, the owners, Gail and Francesco Boglioni, you know, are really dear friends of mine. And we had a really fantastic 11 years, but it was kind of time to move on. Mm. And um, they wanted to do other things. And I kind of wanted something that was my own, probably. And the thing about Petersham was it doesn't seem so extraordinary now, but when it kind of dropped onto the landscape in 2004, People had never seen anything like it. Like, it was incredibly beautiful. I still think it's a really special place, actually. There's not that many places that can rival it. No, it's incredibly... Mm. But it was unique, and we... It wasn't like we had this business model to, oh, let's do this sort of, like, restaurant. You know, they were my friends. They said, do you want to come and do something down here? And it just was really inspiring. We, Mm. You know, the way that it turned out that we did, like, beautiful food in a rest, but on a dirt floor, and they have this incredible sort of... 
they're huge and veteran like world travelers and they spent, spent a lot of time in India and like all of their influences and he's Italian and so it was just like this kind of combination but you know I felt this huge pressure like if you leave Petersham and you had you were once in a restaurant that was kind of almost kind of globally renowned for being mm. incredibly beautiful like to go to a restaurant and another restaurant and people go oh yeah do you know Sky she was a She's cooked peach in that really beautiful restaurant. But like, <laughs> so I wanted a restaurant, obviously, that felt completely different to Petersham Nurseries because it wouldn't be right to try and copy mm. it. You know, that was something that we did together and, you know, it had to feel very different. So I wanted to find a really uh, space that I could design that was something that felt really beautiful. And I do think Spring is an incredibly beautiful restaurant, mm. actually. Very, very different to Petersham, but like... So I guess... Um, I'm sorry, it is. I, mean, I, I was agree. just nodding. Yeah, yeah, I nodded instead of yeah. saying verbally out loud. <laughs> it's yeah. very beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's very different. It's yeah. It's got a much more modern aesthetic in a way. Yeah. And it's much well, more... it's a city restaurant. It's a city, city restaurant. Yeah. 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 And Absolutely. in Somerset House as well. Which yeah. is also yeah. incredible. stunning. Yeah. I know. I feel really lucky to have had two restaurants in t- very, very beautiful places. Yeah. Were you looking for a site like Somerset I House? looked for two years. No, I wasn't. I... I've, I've got an obsession for, um, I wanted, I can't do any weird curvy things. So for example, I couldn't live in a bedroom that had a loft, like that mm. would just make me feel really uncomfortable. So it had to be, had really nice proportions and it was really hard. I guess you think you're going to leave and there'll be a million spaces yeah. in London for great restaurants. And it actually took me two years to find Somerset House. Oh, wow. And I was going to say what came first, the food or the jackal, but obviously you were looking for the right space. But how did you, did you know instinctively what the food would look like, you know, what you were going for? Or has that evolved over time? I think, I think it's always been my personality and it's a reflection. And I feel like there are still some dishes that we do at spring that I used to cook at Petersham, you know. Yeah, there's a monkfish that we do that I used to always cook at Petersham and this chocolate mousse Mm. that we still make today and there's quite a few other things I mean I was lucky enough to be able to design a kitchen that I could do so much more than I we did cook from a garden shed and it was then Francesco's garage so yeah. like it's <laughs> even when I go to Petersham now it's like oh my god how do you cook and mm-hmm. Spring's got two really big kitchens we have an amazing prep kitchen we could never have made breads or mm. um, the pasta and stuff that we make we make all the liqueurs I could have made one ice cream at Petersham. Now we can make three. I always felt it was very exciting for me when I went to spring because I could do a million things that I could never. I love Petersham, but it was a tiny kitchen. Yeah. Can I ask of all those things what the biggest non-negotiable was for you? In having a restaurant? In have Yeah, or the kitchen specifically. So, you know, we've talked windows, about this. Windows. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. For sure. Yeah. Because there's so many. A, Petersham was a beautiful kitchen. It mm. was it's very limited, but it was divine. Yeah. You know, we'd look out and it was, you would go and put the broad beans or peas oh, in the afternoon yeah. sitting in the sun. And, you know, I thought I couldn't go back to that kitchen at the Dorchester where I'd go in in the morning. It was sort of strip yeah. lighting. It was dark. And so spring has, we've got two beautiful kitchens at spring, a service kitchen and a prep kitchen, but they've both got these amazing, they've got the same windows as the restaurant. Which, which, yeah, which way do they look out? Do they look out to the river? So they look out, yes, onto the way that's facing the window. Yeah. So, yeah. Heaven. Yeah, it's so true. I think of most London restaurants. There must be a rarity in London restaurants. Oh. Like, when I think of the top ones in particular. It's amazing. We've got a great dark, kitchen. Yeah. yeah. Usually yeah. down in the basements. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if you think about it, that's our office and that's yeah, probably where we spend yes. 10 hours a yeah. day. So it has to be yeah, nice. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it makes sense. How did Heckfield come about? So Heckfield came about because actually the investor and my business partner in spring owns Heckfield. 
he approached me and he said, would you like to come and, when I left Petersham, would you like to come and be the culinary director at Hexfield? And I said, yes, but I really want a restaurant in London. And he was like, okay, let's do both. So that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the dream, isn't it? So yeah. that was the dream. And spring opened, Heckfield opened in 2018, I think. Yeah. And so spring had been open already four or five years. Mm-hmm. It was a long project, um, Heckfield. So... Yeah, and so that was really lucky, very challenging. Mm. Cooking in a hotel is very different to cooking in a restaurant. How involved were you with, you know, you touched on the farming side of it. I mean, mm-hmm. everything yeah. at Heckford, you know, it's part of, part of the, the cachet riders that it, it prides itself on everything being homegrown. Is mm-hmm. that something you were able to have an influence on? Yeah. And, and how did that work? I was really lucky because actually I've been involved with Heckfield since 2011, even though it opened in 2018. Oh, wow. And I had worked with Jane at Fern Vero and she's a grower and she grows biodynamically. And I was really lucky that I've actually been able to be really involved. So we set out the process to turn the farm uh, that had been traditionally farmed into an organic farm. And we received status in 218 for an organic farm. That's the kind of three-year process. And then we became biodynamic the year after. And I have been really lucky from everything from the bar to the mini bar. You know, we make everything even in the rooms. The room snacks. Yeah. The cheese biscuits. <laughs> yeah. That's you. Yeah. So we do. I do everything. Yes, like everything that's to do with food at, mm. and Heckfield. Yeah. And I was really lucky I could determine the restaurants, the naming of the restaurants. Hearth. I don't know if you've eaten in Hearth, but it's like a wood-fired restaurant downstairs that was meant to be something completely different and we decided to you know expand the fireplace and 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 put a wood fire in and stuff like that so yeah I feel like I've been completely involved um and I still spend definitely two days a week there mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah that's so nice it's your dream yeah I've been lucky enough to go on a couple of press trips Hell and yeah. everybody does their dinners at in down and hearth um, and yes, you know where the big crazy. fire is about exactly in a long table there yeah. and it is i mean it's just it's I mean, really it's, it's movie set exactly on the chairs and it's just heaven yeah. oh god i've got so many questions yeah. <laughs> what's your favorite thing on the menu there right now oh and um, they did this amazing actually had this little bowl of like um grilled aubergine from the farm with smoked tomatoes um it's really lovely it's like so interesting to learn how to to work with a fire but you can put things right up way away from the heat but they get this incredible flavor and it was with tomatoes and this kind of beautiful telegio it was like with fennel blossom it was really lovely actually it was one of the nicest things that i've eaten in a long time sounds, yeah, yeah delicious can i bring you back to other restaurants i want yeah. to know what's next but what's the most memorable meal I mean, this is such a hard question. We, we talk about this all the time on the podcast. Yeah, it's so hard. Scratch but, our heads. Yes, but can you think of it or, or a incredibly memorable meal you've eaten? In a restaurant? Ever. Yeah, in a restaurant. It has to be in a restaurant. Because no, well, I think no, some on. of the most memorable meals are not in restaurants, mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, I remember so clearly being in, in Tuscany when I was about um, 17 or 18 with my father and I'd just finished school, but before I'd gone to university. And I remember eating in this trattoria and it was a really hot day. Right at the end of the meal, they brought this bowl out with um, peaches, just just the most perfectly ripe peaches sitting over ice. And it was so hot and I could hear that kind of thing of the cicadas. And like, I've never forgotten the taste of that peach or it coming out in this kind of, and it was all chilled from the ice and stuff. But I suppose more most recently, I think when I first went to Noma, 
in Copenhagen, which would have been probably in 2013 or 2014, I was incredibly blown away and I thought about the food for a really long time and I thought about the level of service because I think he was, I think he's probably, Rene Redzepi is probably the most important chef in the last 20 years. Like I think whatever you eat now, however you eat, the style of service you eat now, whether a chef brings your food to the table or that's all Rene Redzepi. I have been to Noma, I'd like to, but I'm interested because you said earlier that kind of experimental, quirky food isn't your No, but you know what the thing is, it's to see a master at work Mm. and an artist at work is, and actually I think probably if I'm really honest, if you went to Noma now, because his impact has been so huge, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be so surprising to you Mm. because you've experienced it Mm. in different ways um, out in the world. But the, when I first went, and I'd never seen anything like the way they they greet you, the journey they take you through with the food, the first juice pairings were like absolutely amazing that you could spend time matching juice, uh, like juices, mm. like fine wine. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was incredible. And I remember the first course at the table, with we, we, we all sat down, they said, your first course, and it was this vase of flowers. And I was like... You know, but it was actually all the twigs had been made with rye bread. And it was kind of amazing. Mm. And just that use of kind of fermentation and uh, like really Nordic drilling down into Mm. their kind of like cuisine and stuff like that. I I don't think I'll ever forget that Mm. meal. I I, I actually left quite hungry. And I've eaten at Noma a few times since then Mm. and and loved it and full of respect for him. But actually it was just, I don't know, it was just like seeing an artist and a master it's at work. It felt very, I felt very privileged. I'm yeah. sure people listening will be thinking of Heston, Tom Sellers. I mean, as you say, absolutely. It, it, where else? Where in the UK, outside of London, outside of Heckfield, impresses you? Uh, where in the UK, outside mm. of London? I mean, gosh, so many. Like, there's so many um, people doing great things. I mean. I love it down in Cornwall. I don't know if you've ever eaten in Foy at Fitzroy mm-hmm. or North Street Kitchen or at Coombs Head Farm. Oh, yeah, that's on my um, list. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm really conscious of not being like totally London-based. Mm. But, I mean, you know, I said I, I love, you know, Thomas Parry, James Lowe. I mean, Max Rocher is doing really lovely things. I mean, Claire, I mean, there's so there's many. Plenty there. Of yeah. There, there yeah. are plenty of people. People, I don't want to miss anyone out. <laughs> what's next? Um, what's next for me? Well... I, I mean, I definitely want to keep on working for a long time. I don't know. We're, we're, we're really trying to work on an education program down at the farm. I'm really interested in growing growers as we talk about it oh, and bringing that. more people back to the land. The huge um, interest in the environment and like working more into kind of like how we can mend the very broken food systems that we have. Mm. How can I be impactful? How can I be a mentor? to the people who work, younger people who work with me. I think, you know, I've been, feel like I've been around for quite a long time now and I feel like uh, the last probably 10 or 15 years of my work life, I'd like to focus on um, doing something positive. Uh, I think, I think you change, like I have been around, like I am, have been working for 40 years and I think, you know, you go through different phases, you know, there's a building of your career, there's stuff when there's ego involved, there's, you know, and then, like there's stuff where it's about giving back Mm -hmm. maybe and it's other people's time and how can I kind of support people and 
you know, like develop the young chefs who work with me as well. Like, you know, we're just talking about um, in Hearth, I'm very proud of the work of the young chefs there. And uh, Julia's been, she's Brazilian, but she's been with me for eight years. And it's really lovely to see how she's developed. Or Fred, who's the head chef in Marl, or Rose, who we talked about before. She's been with me since she's 18 and she's about to go off and have a baby. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've seen her like grow and be this incredible head chef, amazing like manager, mentor, like, yeah. So it's like all that stuff I want to really develop, I suppose. I don't think I need another restaurant, <laughs> particularly. Yeah. Uh, Sky, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Where, I was going to say we can talk about this all day. I always say that, but I'm, I'm excited to <laughs> end this podcast so we can talk more about cheese amongst yeah. ourselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it was Definitely. such a pleasure to have you. Everybody do go check out Spring, check out Headfield Play. Okay. Thanks, Heather, as well. And thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, please do email podcast at shillux.com. We love hearing from you. Don't forget... Also to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.